An Eastern Airlines Boeing 727 crashes into landing lights at JFK International Airport. How did weather cause this flight's landing to go so wrong? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Oh, hey. Oh, hey. I hope you enjoyed your extra long episode last week. <laughs> yeah. That was a heavy one. We sorry. You should get a medal for getting all the way through it, because none of us have. <laughs> Even the editing. All we, three of us edited separate We split parts. that editing heavily. <laughs> Dear God. That was so, a long one. you get a break this week. This one's not going to be quite as long. And it's the beginning of a series. We are doing a series on a particular kind of weather phenomena that has brought down planes. Da 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 da. David away. <laughs> well, they they were gonna figure out it was a weather phenomena either way. I mean, you'll find out it's pretty evident right away. Okay, so what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Eastern Airlines Flight 66. Thank you to Apple user Giants6025 for recommending this. Yes, we did see a recommendation, and there was no way for us to tell you that we saw your recommendation. We just so. happened to see it because it was on the there was a review on our Apple podcast page. And uh, someone, I think it was Sonora, looked and saw, and she was like, hey guys, there's a thing. And we were like, oh, okay. Cool. So here you go. There it is. I hope you're still listening. <laughs> yeah, hopefully you are still listening. So this occurred on June 24th of 1975. This was a 727-200, so the bigger version of the 727, with the tail number November 8845 Echo. The captain for this flight was Captain John Clevin. He was 54 years old. He had 17,381 hours total. He's one of the more experienced ones we've ever talked about, of which 2,813 hours were on the 727. The first officer was William Eberhardt. He was 34. He had 5,063 hours, of which 4,327 hours were on the 727. So, he had quite a bit of hours, too. The flight engineer was Gary Guerin. He was 31. He had 3,910 hours total, of which 3,123 hours were on the 727. And then the second flight engineer... Yeah! <laughs> I know. Just gave me a weird look, both of you. <laughs> The second flight engineer was Peter McLough. McLough. Is he McCullough? Irish? <laughs> McCullough? I don't know. McCullough? I'm going to go with McCullough. That sounds Irish. Peter McCullough? Or Scottish. MC- One of the two. M-C-C-U-L-L-O-U-G-H. Oh, good lord. McCullough. 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 It's definitely Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely pronounced McCullough. <laughs> Peter McCullough. We're not making fun of his name. We just think it's funny. Okay. No. <laughs> I'm making fun of Nick Scottish. <laughs> He was 31. He had 3,602 hours total, of which 676 hours were on the 727, and he was on board for training. Make sense now? Yes, thank you. He was a training flight engineer. So he was on for the ride. Along for the ride. This was a flight from New Orleans to John F. Kennedy Airport in New York. The flight departed New Orleans at 1.19 p.m. Eastern Time. All times will be in Eastern Time. With 116 passengers and 8 crew. The flight occurred without any reported issues, and it arrived in the New York City terminal area at 3.35 p.m. and 11 seconds. The JFK approach controller provided radar vectors to sequence the flight for an ILS, or Instrument Landing System, approach on runway 22 left for JFK. 
The flight received an earlier ATIS, or Automated Terminal Information System, info, which, infor which reported VFR conditions at JFK with partial obscured skies, estimated ceiling of 4,000 feet, which were considered broken conditions, and visibility was 5 nautical miles with haze, kind of normal for New York. Winds were 210 at 10. So in other words, heading of 210, they were 10 knots. And the ATIS also told them to expect an ILS 422 left and landing on runway 22 left. That was the only landing runway at JFK. At 3.51 p.m. and 54 seconds, the arrival controller broadcast to all flights on the frequency, we're VFR with 5 mile light, very light rain shower with haze, altimeter 30.13, it's ILS-22 left, also. So, he reported all that stuff, just letting them know current conditions and ILS. At 3.52 p.m. and 43 seconds, so about a minute later, the controller transmitted all aircraft this frequency. We just went IFR with two miles. Very light rain, showers, and haze. IFR? Instrument flight rules. Oh, so instead of visual, it was instrument? Yep, so all of a sudden they went from five miles visibility to two miles visibility. Yikes. With very light rain showers and haze, the runway visual range is not available. And then he said Eastern 66, descend and maintain 4,000, Kennedy Radar 1234, which the flight acknowledged. So the flight crew acknowledged their handoff to a different frequency, which is 123.4. Eastern Airline 66 was one of several flights being ve vectored to land on 22 left. Quite a few, actually. At 3.53 and 22 seconds... The flight contacted the JFK Final Vector Controller. That one was really unique to me. Most airports don't have a Final Vector Controller. Yeah, but JFK is really busy. It is really busy. So basically, this controller's entire job is just to sequence airplanes onto the approach, which is normally what an approach controller does. But in this case, the approach controller brought them in from their respective long-distance approaches into the range where then the vector controller would give them the final vectors to get onto the approach before handing them off to the tower. Yeah, the the airports up in the that part of the United States, especially around New York. It is so busy. Super busy. Yes. So he continued to give them vectors around a thunderstorm in the area to sequence them for the approach with all the other traffic in the area. At 3.57 p.m. and 21 seconds, the flight crew discussed the problems with carrying minimum fuel loads when delays occur in terminal areas. So in other words, there was a lot of traffic in the area. They had to be sequenced in. They were probably running on a little bit of a delay, and they were discussing what that means if you're running on minimum fuel. One of them stated that he was going to check the weather at the alternate, which was LaGuardia, which, let me tell you, I mean, yes, you can check the weather, don't get me wrong. It's not that it couldn't be different, but LaGuardia is very close to JFK. Yeah, they're in the same state. Well, are they usually alternates for each other? Yes. That's interesting. That. Of course, it, within New York, there's so many alternates you can go to. But yes, LaGuardia is, for smaller airplanes and mid-sized airplanes, that would be definitely more the, the, the alternate, a good alternate, yeah. because it is so close by. LaGuardia, I mean, both of them are on Long Island, and both of them are within the New York City area, so they are all very close together. Less than a minute later, one of the pilots said, one more hour and we'd come down whether we want to or not. So obviously they were... Running low on fuel. Running on a little bit of a bind because of delays with traffic. At 3.59 p.m. and 19 seconds, the air traffic controller transmitted a message to all aircraft. A severe wind shift had been reported on the final approach and that he would report more info shortly. 
Followed by that, Eastern Airlines Flight 902 had abandoned its approach at 3.57 p.m. and 30 seconds, and they were the ones that had reported to the tower. At 3.59 p.m. and 40 seconds, Eastern Airlines 902 informed air traffic control that they had a heavy wind shear to the right and downward with no visibility at 200 feet. They further stated that they lost about 10 knots below their airspeed bug, so the little bug on their their airspeed indicator, so they're 10 knots too slow, which, when you're going low and slow on your final approach, is really dangerous, even 10 knots. And the rate of descent had increased to 1,500 feet per minute downward. Crap. When they went to full power and went around at 100 feet. Yikes. So very last minute, like, nope, we're going around. This was heard by Eastern Airlines 66, and Air Traffic Control asked if Eastern Airlines 66 had heard the report, which they had. They re- they acknowledged that. ATC then cleared them for the ILS when they were five nautical miles from the outer marker. So you have an outer, a middle, and an inner marker. They're all, you know, close to the the end of the runway, closer to the end of the runway on the final approach. They're just basically checkpoints along the way. So... When they were five nautical miles to the outer marker, they were cleared for the ILS approach. Right after they had heard about all this wind. They acknowledged the clearance at 4 p.m. and 54 seconds, and that they would report conditions once on the ground. At 4.01 p.m. and 49 seconds, the first officer, who was the pilot flying in this case, called for completion of the final checklist. While the final checklist was being completed, the captain said, I have the radar on standby in case I need it. I can get it off later. In other words, the checklist probably called for the radar to be turned off, their weather radar, but instead he opted to leave it on after hearing Eastern 902's report. At 4.02 p.m. and 42 seconds, air traffic control asks Eastern Airlines 902, would you classify that as severe wind shift? Correction, shear? To which Eastern Airlines 902 responded, affirmative. So they classified it as severe wind shear. At 4.02 p.m. and 50 seconds, the first officer of EA-66 stated, Gonna keep a pretty healthy margin on this one. Then another member of the crew stated, I would suggest that you do. And the first officer responded, In case he's right. So in other words, they all plan to try to take it with a healthy margin of safety. Keep in mind that he says, In case he's right. Right. I'll talk about it. The other flight? Yep. Yep. Ah. At 4.02 p.m. and 58 seconds, so eight seconds later, Eastern Airlines 66 reported over the outer marker, and the final vector controller then cleared them to contact the tower controller, to which they did. At 4.03 p.m. and 12 seconds, the flight contacted the tower controller and reported at the outer marker inbound, so gave them the initial. At 4.03 p.m. and 44 seconds, air traffic controller the air traffic controller cleared them to land on runway 22 left. The flight crew acknowledged this and asked, Got any reports on braking action? The local controller did not respond until asked again, at which point at 4.04 and 14 seconds, the local controller replied, No, none none approach end of the runway is wet, but I'd say first half is wet. We've had no adverse reports. That's all he said. That was very confusing. Yes. Well, and there was a lot of actually pauses and hesitations in it, too. Like, he was busy. To be fair, controllers at any airport in New York are extremely busy all yes. the time. Yes. So he probably was focusing on something else while there they were, were many answering things, on them. Yeah. Many, many things happening. At 4.04 and 45 seconds, so about 30 seconds later, National Airlines Flight 1004 reported to air traffic control that they were at the outer marker and asked, everyone else having a good ride? <laughs> at 4.04 and 58 seconds, air traffic control responded, Eastern 66, National 1004, the flight adverse 
The only adverse reports we've had about approach is a wind shear on short final. The National Flight acknowledged this, but EA-66 did not, and they were not heard from again. Dun, dun, dun! The two flight attendants seated at the rear of the cabin on Eastern Airlines 66 recalled the following. There was little to no turbulence on the approach. Suddenly the plane rolled to the left, and they heard the engine power increase significantly. The plane then rolled upright, then rocked back and forth. They were then thrown forward and then upright. Several seconds later, they saw the cabin emergency lights illuminate and the oxygen masks deploy. They then remember escaping the airplane. So at 4.04 and 52 seconds, the captain said, I have the approach lights, and the first officer said, okay. At 4.04 and 54 seconds, so two seconds later, the captain said, again said, stay on the gauges. So he's trying to keep him focused on flying the airplane instrument by the instruments. And the first officer replied, I'm with it. They were then passing through 400 feet, and its rate of descent had increased from an average of 675 feet per minute to 1,500 feet per minute. So steep increase. Yep. The aircraft then began to deviate below the glide slope, and the airspeed was decreasing rapidly. At 4.05 and 6 seconds, when the aircraft was was at 150 feet, the captain said, runway in sight. Less than a second later, the first officer said, I got it. The captain replied, got it? And a second later, at 4.05 and 10 seconds, an unintelligible exclamation was heard. And the first officer commanded takeoff thrust, but then they impacted the ground. 4.05 and 11 seconds. Other witnesses on the ground saw the airplane at a low altitude in heavy rain, then watched it strike some of the approach lights for runway 22 left. They witnessed it catch fire and come to rest on Rockaway Boulevard. The initial impact was at, like I said, 4.05 and 11 seconds. Witnesses along the final approach said that weather in the area was heavy rain, with lightning and thunder, and wind was blowing from several different directions, according to the different the different uh, witnesses. Six crew and 106 passengers perished in this in on impact. Two crew and 10 passengers survived the crash, though one passenger later died. That's miraculous. Yeah. Six of the approach light towers were destroyed, and four were damaged. A street light and a perimeter fence for the airport was damaged. The aft end of the jack screw fairing for the left outboard trailing flaps were lodged in one of the approach light towers. So, in other words, on the trailing edge flaps, you have the the screws that actually actuate those flaps, and the fairing that goes around it was jammed into a, a light tower, clearly having been where they struck. That's nice. Yeah, great. Yep. The aircraft then rolled into a steep left bank in excess of 90 degrees between two further light towers, where it contacted the ground with the left wing and then separated into three large sections. The airplane managed to miss the three following light towers. It then struck the following five towers and then came to rest on Rockaway Boulevard. The approach lights and large boulders on the route caused the fuselage to collapse and disintegrate. There was then a large post-crash fire. That's horrible. Yes. They're lucky. That's, it's lucky that anybody survived. That. Yes. Um, fire crews showed up very, very quickly. Well, they were right by the airport. I mean, yes. But fire crews managed to get there very, very quickly, and they managed to be part of what saved the the passengers and crew that did survive, because... The 12 people who did? Yes, but let me tell you, there's some there's another part in the report where it says 14 survived. Yeah, we couldn't figure that out. I don't what? know. I don't know if it was a typo. I don't know. I don't know. Because in the official chart on the report, it says 
two crew and ten passengers survived with a little footnote that says one of the passengers later perished, so it was nine passengers that survived. Huh. I mean, this is old enough. It could have been a typo. They just decided not to go back and fix it. I don't know. I don't know. It was typewritten, so going back and fixing that kind of thing is a... Tough. Very rough. Obnoxious. So glad we were not alive for the time of typewriters. (laughs) (laughs) I would be screwed. Okay. Okay, is that all yet? That's all I got. So, as the NTSB performed this investigation, it quickly became evident that weather was a primary factor in this incident. But did something go wrong mechanically because of the weather? Upon analysis of the engines, investigators found that all three were operating properly at the time of impact due to evidence of high-speed damage internally. So how exactly did the storm impact the operation of the flight? First, we need to understand airflow patterns inside of a storm, particularly summer storms like this one. There are vertical disturbances in these storms because of cold, dense air moving in over warm, less dense air near the ground. These create updrafts and downdrafts, both of which can be extremely dangerous. As a downdraft, or air descending, reaches the ground, it then goes outwards in all directions horizontally and then upwards to create a cushion effect. An aircraft entering a storm can experience any of these three sections with varying effects depending on the strength of the storm. This next part I'm going to read directly from the report as it is worded beautifully. When the airplane flies into a vertical wind, the transient change in the direction of the total wind vector relative to the airplane's entry path causes a change in both lift and drag. If the vertical wind's direction is downward, the lift and drag will decrease and the airplane will accelerate downward. The basic stability of the airplane will cause it to pitch up initially. However, the ultimate effect on the airplane's flight path will be an increase in the descent rate relative to the ground. If the flight controls remain fixed, the aircraft will restabilize and descend with the descending air mass. Thus, the change in the airplane's rate of descent relative to the ground will equal the vertical speed of the wind, and if longitudinal wind does not change, the airspeed will remain approximately constant. The pilot can compensate for this condition by increasing the airplane's pitch and by adding thrust to establish a climb relative to the descending air. He will thereby maintain the desired flight path. So basically, to stay level, he has to climb. Yeah, yeah. Which it looks like they were starting to do when it was too late and they far, hit something. Far oh, far, late. far, far too late. Yeah. So similarly, the pi- so I'm done reading from the report. Similarly, the pilot must also account for changes in horizontal wind speed by altering the thrust settings. During a decreasing headwind, depending on the pilot's actions, or rather, lack of action, the plane will begin to descend faster than anticipated, which the pilot must account for so as to avoid collision into the ground. So when entering a mature thunderstorm with both downdrafts and decreasing headwind, the pilots enter an increasing headwind, then the downdraft, then a sudden decrease in headwind, which is extremely dangerous, as the pilots may have actually decreased power when entering the increasing headwind. Does that make sense? Yes. So they increase headwind, then go into the downdraft, then have decreasing headwind. And if they anticipated, based on the increasing headwind at first, then they're in a really bad situation when they get to the decreased headwind. Because then they need to pull the... They need to increase increase power. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because if they lose the headwind, that is speed that they will lose over the wing. Yep. And they have and to counter the that. And will go away. Yes, so yep. they have to counter that by adding thrust. EA-66 experienced a 15-knot increase in headwind and maybe a slight updraft as there was a reduction in descent between 600 and 500 feet above the ground. 
As it passed through 500 feet, it entered the worst part of the storm and had a downdraft of 15 feet per second, and the headwind decreased by 5 knots. Then it descended another 100 feet, and the downdraft increased to 21 feet per second, and it descended below the glide slope while experiencing a 15-knot decrease in headwind. The other flights that flew that before EA-66, like Flying Tiger 161, EA-902, Finnair 105, and November 240 Victor, experienced similar conditions, though not as severe, but they did experience difficulty doing so. EA-902 had also descended below his glide slope by 120 feet and was within 70 feet of the elevation of the approach lights. So he was also very, very low and very close to the lights. Yeah, he was too low. Freakishly low. Flying Tiger 161 wasn't sure of their missed approach capability, so that's why they landed. Huh. I thought that was really strange. Like, we didn't know if we could go around, so we landed. I just don't... Sometimes you don't have that option. (laughs) I mean, I understand if they didn't understand the procedure for missed approach. It said capability. I just don't get that part. You can always go around. Thrust and... Well, and if you, if you don't know your procedure for go-around at that specific airport on that specific runway, just tell air traffic controllers that you need we're vectors. We're going around. Yeah, we're going around and we're going to need vectors. And they'll give it to you. They'll help you out. They'll do whatever they need to do. Just fly the airplane. Yeah. I don't know. But they managed to land that airplane. Yes, somehow. Finnair 105 increased... The reference speed for approach by 20 to 25 knots, which helped them get through the storm. Yeah. November 240 Victor was a Beechcraft Baron, which was flying, like, general aviation. Small. They made it through because it was a smaller plane flying at a higher than normal approach speed. Yes. And they landed at JFK? (laughs) Yeah, I don't... Really strange. Why are they landing at JFK? We're going to glance over that. Okay. I don't know. (laughs) I don't have answers. I mean, that airport wasn't... It was still busy, but it wasn't quite as busy in 1975. So I don't know. That that really wouldn't happen today. I mean, I guess it's not untold that you couldn't have them at all, but it's really unlikely. Like, if, if if there was an emergency, I could see a general aviation aircraft landing at any big airport. This wasn't, yeah, well, But this wasn't really an emergency? No. So... In any case. EA-66 also added to their approach reference speed, which did help in the air, but can be dangerous on a wet runway, as was notified by an administrative bulletin by the airline. The bulletin only implied that higher approach speeds should be used in anticipation of low-level wind shear, but to be careful because of hydroplaning upon runway contact. Simulations run by Boeing showed that this increase in speed helped, but the pilot still would have had to adjust once recognizing the deviation and descent from the glide slope to avoid, well, what happened. Based on the CVR, none of the flight crew was, quote, aware or concerned about the increased rate of descent, end quote. Well, until it was too late. And then they were like, ah! (laughs) When the captain called runway in sight, they were 80 feet below the glide slope, and he was clearly looking outside and not at the instruments. When the first officer responded and confirmed the runway in sight, he was also looking outside and not at instruments. Was that why he was like, wait, got it? (laughs) I can imagine him looking at him and going, why aren't you looking at the gauges? (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty much it. (laughs) Additionally, the lack of turbulence may have led them to underestimating the severity of the storm. These simulations also show that the first officer did react in some capacity to the increased descent, but didn't do enough in terms of thrust and pitch corrections. They needed to do a lot more. 
So basically, because they couldn't see very well, it wasn't until it was way too late that the crew realized their descent and how much they would need to do to stop descending that much. So once they called for takeoff the rest, it was way too late. The second big subject addressed by investigator was why the heck runway 22 left was still in operation, despite the reported severe wind shear when 31 left was free and relatively clear. Yeah. Why were they only using that run one way then? That's exactly what they wanted to know. They, that's what strikes everybody as strange. They found out about that report. The, both the flight and the air traffic controller listened to the report. They even acknowledged, the, the air traffic controller even like asked EA-66 for an acknowledgement of hearing that report, and they acknowledged it, and then proceeded to give them the ILS clearance for runway 22 left. So I have quote-unquote explanations for why the flight crew continued and why air traffic control continued on that runway. I don't, I wouldn't, okay, I wouldn't put it on, it's not that the flight crew couldn't have made a, a decision to go around or go to an alternate or something else, but... When air traffic controllers clear them for an ILS approach, at that point, the crew is kind of like, okay, this is what air traffic controllers still believe is safe and we should do. Okay, I'll get into it. So, air traffic control first. The tower controller didn't consider a runway change because, quote, the surface winds were most nearly aligned with runway 22 left, end quote. He also didn't have the assistant tower controller do it, who was responsible for runway changes. The runway use program also didn't require runways to be selected based on winds, but did require them to be used based on noise abatement protocols, and runways 3-1 left and right had been used for more than six hours, at which point 2-2 left and right were favored for noise abatement. Yes. Which the crew even actually discussed at one point. I didn't put that in there, but they were talking about um, approaching high, that way they could reduce speed early to allow noise abatement to continue. If you live by an airport... Expect to hear planes. I hear them all the time. I mean, we don't even live that close to the airport. I live like five minutes away from here. Uh And I hear planes going over all the time. And most of the time, you don't even hear it. To be fair, airplanes are a lot quieter now. Yes, (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll take that. But if you live by an airport, you should expect to hear some noise. Yes, I agree. Which is why DIA is in the middle of nowhere. Okay, but to the person (laughs) that reports DIA for noise abatement like every day, calm down. You'll live. Move to Arvada. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the investigators believe that more of the reason for not changing runway was the potential for an increase in traffic delays and increased workload on the controllers. If they had changed runways, this would have added 30 minutes to EA-6's landing time, decreasing their reserve fuel, which was already at one hour. And so now going to the flight crew, they had only heard EA-902's report of bad weather and not the other flights. And the captain of EA-66 contributed that to the other flight covering for a bad attempt at landing. So they they think that EA-66 thought, based on his like weird snide comment earlier that I told you to remember, mm-hmm. that EA-902 reported that weather to cover for a bad approach. Allow me to read exactly what that said. Hold on just a second, because his comment was even deeper than that, and I didn't put the full thing in there. Okay. But also, get over yourself. While you're pulling that up, I just have one more thing. Mm -hmm. So the investigators basically determined that if this flight crew had heard some of the other reports from planes, that they would have taken it more seriously. 
but because they only probably. heard reports from one flight that it was nasty weather, they're like, eh, it's probably fine. Well, and isn't it the same airline that they're flying Yes. With? So that's probably contributed to that, too. In so, some underlying way, yeah. So here's specifically what they said, what the EA-66 crew said about the other one. They said, you know, this is asinine. And somebody else said, I wonder if they're covering it for themselves. Yeah. That is specifically what they said. Maybe you should just take the situation seriously. I don't know. Or if you're, if you don't know, ask air traffic control. Who wasn't taking it really seriously either. To but be they fair, could all yeah. see the thunderstorm. I don't know. And you can also radio other planes too. It's not like this was daylight. I don't understand because <sighs> I don't either. They and were I... vectored around it, and they could see it. They did make a fair point earlier that there wasn't a lot of turbulence, which may have led to them underestimating the severity. Yes, and I but... get that. But that is when it is most dangerous, too. Because updrafts and downdrafts, when they are big updrafts and downdrafts, if you aren't paying attention to your instruments... They can catch you by surprise. I.e. exactly what happened to them. It pushed them down a lot without them even noticing. Well, and they were already low. They were low, but it reduced their airspeed well below their safety margin. What did I say the downdraft was? 21 feet per second? 21 feet... Yeah, I think 21 yes. feet per second. So let me convert that into normal people wind speeds. Well, they went from 650-something, 675-foot-per-minute descent to a 1,500-foot-per-minute descent. They literally doubled. Well, as far as that wind speed goes, so that was a 14-mile-per-hour wind downward, which they didn't, they couldn't fight. That's, that's strong when you are low and slow. Which, for you metric people, is... 23 kilometers per hour. I will. I have the specific number on what they needed to do to fix the problem. Okay, go for it. Nine degrees of nose up and full thrust. That is what they needed to get out of their situation. And could they have done it in time? Yes. Estimated if they had pulled the stick back enough to get it to nine degrees at the moment they realized, yes. Okay, so they could have recovered. And because the first officer did something, but he didn't do anything that drastic. He pulled the nose and he in- they increased thrust. And you pulled the nose back, but it was nowhere near enough. Did he? Did they go to full thrust? I think. I think I. He went to take off. He went to take off thrust. So not full thrust. No. No. So they needed to go to full thrust, and not until it was too late. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay, so now for findings. They found that the airplane was fully functional with no failures of any parts or systems. That was important only because that really applied here. They, they, it was weather, holy weather. Yeah, there was no mechanical issue. Yep. They found that a very strong storm was present near the middle marker on the instrument landing system approach. They found that two previous airplanes had reported hazardous wind conditions and wind shear prior to EA-66's approach. They found that Eastern Airlines 66 received the wind shear report from EA-902, but did not receive the hazardous wind report from Flying Tiger 161. They found that when the aircraft penetrated the storm about 500 to 600 feet high, they encountered several rapid changes in wind conditions, causing rapid changes in their descent rate. They found that at 400 feet, the aircraft began rapidly descending below the glide slope due to a heavy downdraft and decreased headwind. 
They found that at the same time, the captain stated that he had the approach lights in sight and directed the first officer to remain on the instrument reference. That was the, the part I spat out toward the end of that story. They found that in response, the first officer stated that he was remaining on instrument reference, but likely began transitioning to the visual references he would need to complete the approach. They found that although the first officer made changes to the pitch and thrust to the airplane, any changes made were insufficient to alter significantly the aircraft's high rate of descent and reduced airspeed. We talked about that. Yep, yep, yep. They found that the flight crew probably did not recognize the deviation below the normal approach path until a high descent rate had developed because of their reliance on visual references, which were obscured by heavy rain and low visibility. They found that by the time the flight crew recognized the aircraft's dangerously low altitude, impact with the approach light towers was inevitable because the aircraft because the aircraft's high rate of descent. They found that simulator tests showed that approximately 9 degrees of nose-up pitch change was needed to stop the aircraft's high rate of descent. Also, tests showed that the pilots applied less pitch change than was needed and were hesitant to divert their instrument scan to verify that sufficient thrust had been added to compensate for the airspeed loss. They found that the simulator tests were inconclusive as to whether the flight crew could have avoided the accident had they relied on and responded rapidly to the flight path deviations, which were probably evident on their flight instruments. This is weird to me. It seems like they probably could have avoided the incident if they had been paying attention to their instruments. I would think so. If they knew, like, their speed and the, how low they were, which clearly they didn't until it was They were too late. looking outside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of them should have been looking at the gauges. But they discussed. But but I understand that it says it's inconclusive, because I guess how could you really prove that? But I don't know. Seems weird to me. They don't know for sure that that's what was happening, but I'm sure that that's what happened. I'm, I'm sure they're assuming that's what happened. Yes. Well, they said it was. They found that both the flight crew and air traffic controllers were unaware or were aware of the thunderstorm activity in the approach to runway 22 left. They found that the air traffic system was operated at capacity for at least 30 minutes at JFK before the accident, and air traffic controllers were very, very busy. So there's the thing. That has to do with the the runway change and the vectors and why their calls were sometimes paused and difficult to get back to. and Because they were literally running JFK at capacity for air traffic controllers, for about 30 minutes. And that's why they didn't want to change the runway. It's because it would have mean, meant more work for them. Exactly. After 3.51 p.m., only one runway could be used for landing because instrument flight rule conditions prevailed. So in other words, weather was over the area. So they... Was were... there only a glide slope on 2-2 left? I, I don't know. It doesn't say. To be honest. Maybe there was at the time. That would make sense. Why they weren't using 2-2 right as well. 2-2 right was for takeoff traffic. They can't land on the departing traffic runway because it was just as busy. Okay. So they had the two runways active because it was favorable for winds, which really would have been the instrument thing they were talking about. Using the instrument landing system and 2-2 right was busy with takeoff, so they couldn't put anybody landing on 2-2 right. But they should have used the other runway, which is the next point. They found that at least one of the northwest runways, runway 31 left, was relatively unexposed to the influence of the thunderstorms. So there might have been a little bit of rain but it didn't really have the heavy thunderstorm right over the approach. 
They found that even though the thunderstorm's hazards were visible on the approach path, neither the pilots of the inbound flights or air traffic control took action to discontinue the initiation of approaches to runway 22 left or to change the landing runway. So again, there, they didn't change the runway, and nobody said anything about it. Nobody did anything about it. They found that the accident was not survivable because the aircraft completely disintegrated on impact, and the occupant restraint systems failed. As in seatbelts. That's not good. The unrestrained occupants collided with numerous objects and received multiple extreme impact injuries. As I would expect from flying around. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know. I mean, I I don't know. If if more people would have survived, their seatbelts probably would have worked. And it probably would have. But they didn't work. People flew out of their seats, literally, because the seatbelts just didn't work. That's different now. Yes, very. Seatbelts work. <laughs> yes. They found that the fire department's quick response and application of fire extinguisher agents prevented fatal burns to nine of the passengers who survived. Good. And they found that non-frangible approach light towers caused extensive damage to the aircraft. This is an interesting one. Non-frangible, there's a word. Anyways, it doesn't break easily. It's it's a very solid welded structure, riveted structure. So when the airplane went through the approach light towers, they were solid and they did some serious damage to the airplanes rather than when the airplanes impacted them, they would easily just collapse, kind of collapse or fold over and prevent doing too much damage to the airplane. I mean, this was in the 1970s, and who knows when those lights were put in. Yes, and I think there's some sort of requirement for it now, but I think they'd probably still do a lot of damage. I'm just thinking of, like, the good old, the good old 50s where they built everything with steel, and everything was, like, steel and super iron hard and, and welded yes. together, you know? Yep, yep. Yeah, so they probably were just, who knows how long they'd been there. Who knows? I mean, they are light structures. They're kind of important. Yeah. And they're not meant to have a plane go through them. Right, they aren't. But they do, so... In the event. They should probably... Be designed to... Not kill people? Yeah. Just a thought. Maybe you just shouldn't fly through them? Maybe. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack here. There is. I know they didn't do it on purpose, but you know. Yeah. So that's it for findings. Probable cause? The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the aircraft's encounter with adverse winds associated with a very strong thunderstorm located astride the ILS localizer course, which resulted in a high descent ratio into the non-frangible approach light towers. The flight crew's delayed recognition and correction of the high descent rate were probably associated with their reliance upon visual cues rather than on flight instrument references. However, the adverse winds might have been too severe for a successful approach and landing, even if they had relied upon and responded rapidly to the indication of the flight instruments. Contributing to the accident was the continued use of runway 22 left, when it should have become evident to both air traffic control personnel and the flight crew that a severe weather hazard existed along the approach path. Yep. That's the probable cause. And yes, that's basically everything. I think the one interesting thing they say in there is that they don't think it would have been preventable because the conditions were so bad. Period. They think it just, they don't which know, I kind they of, don't think that they could have corrected for it. Which I kind of argue because planes were landing. Yes, and I do think that they were just too late in their reactions. I think if they had done more early to detect and prevent this problem, that they might have been able to save that airplane. Yeah. They had a much better chance anyways. Yep. Okay, recommendations. Not very many of these. And then I will leave you on a slight cliffhanger. 
Yeah. This is all to the FAA. They recommended to the FAA to conduct a research program to define and classify the level of flight hazard of thunderstorms using specific criteria for the severity of thunderstorms and the magnitude of wind changes. Basically finding a way to literally like specify exactly how severe one storm is over another. They recommended expediting the program to develop and install equipment that would detect and classify thunderstorms by severity within five nautical miles of the threshold of ends of active runways at airports with precision instrument approaches. So adding in equipment that would actually detect this stuff and tell you how severe it is when it's within five nautical miles on the end of a runway. So I want to mention that it was mentioned earlier in the report that a certain agency known as NOAA, which stands for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they had a lab based in Boulder, Colorado. Still there. That was developing this kind of tool and had actually implemented it at Stapleton Airport. Here in Denver. Because we have high wind conditions. Because we're known for this stuff. But it was not yet able to be implemented because it needed further research. Fair enough. They recommended installing equipment that can detect wind changes in a 3D plane for takeoff and approach path within one nautical miles of the threshold of the runways of active runways serving transport type aircraft. So they wanted equipment that could literally tell wind changes within a lateral, a horizontal, and a vertical plane like these all these different planes the 3d planes figuring out how the winds change in all those directions they recommend a requiring inclusion of the wind shear penetration capability of an airplane as an operational limitation in the airplane's operational manual and require pilots to apply the limitations to the criterion for a takeoff or an approach making it part of the airplane's limitations what they can do for wind shear they recommended in the interim Install equipment capable of measuring and transmitting to tower operators the speed and direction of the surface wind in the immediate vicinity of all runway ends and install lighted wind socks near the side of the runway, approximately 1,000 feet from the ends at airports serving air carrier operations. This is now in place at all major airports in the United States, basically. And a lot of them are even automated, but they... That's why, like, here at the airport that I work at, they... On, even on the little airplanes, when they clear them to land, if the air traffic controller is paying attention and they're not too busy, as the airplane gets really close to, to final, as it's one or two nautical miles out, they'll actually just spit out wind conditions at surface at the at the airport by that end of the runway. That way the pilot knows last minute these are the wind conditions. I hear it all the time. They recommended developing and instituting procedures whereby ATC and pilots are provided with timely info about the existence of thunderstorm activity near the departure and approach flight paths. All these are pretty similar. They recommended revising air traffic control procedures to specify that the location and severity of thunderstorms be considered in the criteria for selecting active runways. That one seems important. Seems important? I was really surprised when they said that it wasn't required. It should be. Yeah, it wasn't required, and they were like, eh, it's there. Keep going! The fact that they chose runways based on noise abatement rather than that? They have four runways. Use them? They could have used the other two, which is a totally different direction. And I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. If you live Do by they airport. cross? And I think they actually have five runways now. Do they cross? There are crossing runways, yes. Four of the runways cross. Then maybe that was another factor. Having to schedule between landings and, and takeoffs. All they have to do is take everybody and shift them to the other two, and then continue. I don't know. 
They recommended modifying and expanding air traffic control training programs to include info concerning the effect that winds produced by thunderstorms can have on an airplane's flight path control. They recommended modifying initial and recurrent training programs and tests to require that pilots demonstrate their knowledge of the low-level wind conditions associated with mature thunderstorms and of the potential effects these winds might have on an airplane's performance. So making it a lot more mm, automatic to pilots through their training and their recurrent training about wind conditions and how that affects performance of airplanes. Recommended expediting the program to develop typical models of environmental winds associated with mature thunderstorms, which can be used for demonstration purposes in pilot training simulators. So actually having basically data and specifics to go off of to use in simulator training. They recommended placing greater emphasis on the hazards of low-level flight through thunderstorms and on the effects of wind shear encountered in the Accident Prevention Program for the benefit of general aviation pilots. That one was interesting, because they're saying not only do they want to expand on this for transport airplanes, but for everyone? As you should. I feel like it's even more dangerous for the small planes. Generally, yes. If they're landing at a general aviation airport where their speeds are low, absolutely, it's way more dangerous. Those airplanes can flip over in wind shear. This one almost did. It did at one point, (laughs) basically. As a matter of fact, they came to rest inverted. So there. So there. That said, the Baron that was on the approach did the approach at a high rate of speed because they were, I don't know, in airline traffic? Sequenced Uh, into airline traffic? Yeah. With transport airplanes all around everywhere? They were probably probably flying at cruise speed until they were over the threshold. Then they cut power. Kind of like PZ-12s when they land at Denver. Yeah. They fly at a really high rate of speed until they're... And then they go... On, <laughs> until they're on like a one nautical mile final, and then they just cut power. It's like going down the highway and then seeing... Uh, a smart car going at like 100 miles an hour. Yeah, basically. Being yeah. in a smart car trying to stay with every... Or like going down the highway and then you have the, the line of traffic that just stops and you have to go... Ah! And slam on the brake and go... Yeah. Kind of like that. Yep. We have technical analogies here. Totally. Sure. They recommended expediting the research to develop equipment and procedures which would permit a pilot to transition from instrument to visual references without degradation of vertical guidance during the final segment of an instrument approach. So when the the pilot flying, the first officer, started transitioning from instruments to visual, which the captain was even telling him, don't do that, Mm -hmm. having an actual procedure on how to do that going from looking solely at instruments to doing that and outside for your final approach. Well, and now we have heads-up displays that help with that. Yep. They recommended expediting the research to develop an airborne detection device, which will alert a pilot to the need for rapid corrective measures as an airplane encounters a wind shear condition. Basically a GPWS. Already done. (laughs) Yes. It's basically a GPWS tied with their weather radar, tied with a lot of things. They, and finally, they recommended expediting the development of a program leading to the production of accurate and timely forecasts of wind shear in the terminal area. I mean, that's just a good idea, period. Just knowing about wind shears, period. These days, we can predict winds aloft really, really well. Winds aloft is anything above surface. So, this incident really spurred a lot of research into weather phenomena, particularly a kind of phenomena that we actually didn't mention in this report because the term I don't believe was coined yet. And we'll come back to that in the rest of this series. Yeah. So see you next week. That's pretty much it. Find out more on the episode next week. Yeah. 
I feel like a really corny TV show. It's exactly why I said that. <laughs> bam, bam, bam. <laughs> Sorry. Have a good week, you guys. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay smart. Yeah. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.